0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry and I'm Tracy V. Wilson. You'll hear that again in a minute because we recorded it while we were in Salt Lake City at Salt Lake Comic Con and we did a couple of live shows. Yep. One of those shows was actually a panel where we talked with authors who incorporate history into their fiction writing. We were really, really lucky to be at a convention that had just some amazing authors on hand who were willing to share their process with us. This conversation covers everything from the research process to diversity in history, to being kind of precious about facts. Uh, I want to thank you, Holly, for doing 99% of the legwork on this panel. Um, <laughs> Holly assembled a great, uh, a great panel. Uh, some of them, one of them will be a familiar voice to listeners. Uh, and then also a really interesting spectrum of uh, how people incorporate history into their writing. So you will get answers from a, a, Wide range of sort of flavors of historical fiction. Yeah, and I, I really should give some of the credit on putting together that panel to um, Ryan Call, who is one of the amazing people that runs Salt Lake Comic Con. I kind of put out a yell to him and said, hey, we want to do this panel, and he gave me suggestions on who might be good to talk to. So thank you. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Salt Lake Comic Con. We had a wonderful time there. But we're going to hop right into our discussion, and then uh, you too can benefit from hearing about some of the interesting thoughts that these authors had to share with us. And welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson, and I'm Holly Fry. We have something cool today, which is that we're going to talk to some actual authors about historical fiction. Yeah, we often get asked uh, in, by listeners, like if we would cover like a historical fiction book, and since that's not really part of the purview of the podcast as it exists. We can't really do it as a regular episode, but for special events like a live event like this, we absolutely can. Yeah, and it also, uh, instead of talking about an individual book and, and its historical influence, we'll be talking about lots of writers and lots of books. Yeah, we thought we'd take advantage of the fact that we are at a, at a place where we have several writers yes. um, and writers of historical fiction. So we thought what better way to explore that topic than to talk with them about how they actually create the fiction that people like you love because it blends sort of the wonders of imagination with actual historical fact. Yes. So first we're going to have each of our wonderful panelists uh, introduce themselves starting with this gentleman to my left who is not a stranger to the Stuff You Missed in History class audience.
1: Uh, my name is Brian Young and I'm the author of uh, a children's illustrated history of presidential assassination, which is what I was on for before. Um, but in the historical fiction realm, uh, my last book was called *The Aeronaut*, and it was sort of a steampunk World War One novel. And additionally, I write for *Star Wars* .com and *Star Wars Insider*, and, and a lot for *Star Wars*. And uh, really like researching history.
2: Uh, my name is E.B. Wheeler. I'm the author of The Haunting of Springett Hall, um, which you might guess by the title is not completely historically accurate, um, but um, also uh, Born to Treason, which is a lot more historical, is based on actual events, and uh, No Peace with the Dawn, which is coming out in November.
3: Uh, so my name is Brian McClellan. Uh, I did give a caveat when we first talked about doing this panel that I write uh, epic fantasy. I don't actually write historical books, but I'm very heavily influenced by history. Uh, but then I add magic and a secondary world to it. Um, but uh, my books are the uh, Powder Mage Trilogy.
0: Uh, we were actually really excited to have that breadth of uh, a, a range of uh, from fantasy that is sort of historically flavored to all the way to the other end of the spectrum uh, to your books. So we're going to begin with a question that is open to anyone on the panel. Um, I have become a big fan of Carrie Greenwood's Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries books. I like them quite a lot. And I noticed after reading several, which I am reading in order, that she started to place notes along the lines of the one I am about to read at the end of each book. This says, this is a work of fiction. I have researched it as carefully as I could. There are undoubtedly some small errors of fact and timing, and one big anachronism, which is that I unilaterally moved the flower parade from 1929 to 1928. Please forgive me and do not feel moved to correct me. (laughs) Anyone else is welcome to email me. And then she gives her email address. So I wondered, all these other writers of historical fiction, whether you've had similar uh, need to correct things that are historical parts of books that are actually fiction.
3: I, uh, so I toyed around with historical fiction in college quite a lot. I really enjoyed it because I, I love history. Um, And this is the exact reason I don't write historical fiction. (laughs) Um, I uh, am a Wikipedia writer... And I get a lot of eye rolls from other authors when I say this because I, I write in a fantastical world and I do that so that it's not this world. Uh, if I need to research something, it's usually going to be something like, you know, the muzzle velocity of a, you know, flintlock rifle. You know, stuff like that. It's going to be very specific and easy to find. Uh, I don't do a ton of digging, uh, and try to be specific to a particular year that I'm trying to copy. Uh, I try very much to capture the uh, kind of the feel of an era. Uh, I want something to be, you know, Napoleonic, but without Napoleon and our own history, you know, muddling it all up. Um, but I, I had a huge fear when I started my books that I would get a lot of that. And it hasn't actually been a big problem. I've had some history, I've had a one or two history buffs who have said, you know, oh, you're doing this wrong with, you know, like, you know, your infantry formations, you know, stuff like that. But I, I, most of my feedback has been very positive.
2: I try to be um, as precise, as accurate as I can be with my historical fiction because it is historical fiction. And there's always going to be someone out there that knows a little bit more than you do about it. And so you just, you have to be as as careful as you can and do as much research as you can. We did have... um, in No Peace with the Dawn, I have a co-author in that book. And we do have a few things that we um, knowingly put in there that weren't completely accurate. Um, one of them was um, there, were, there were a total of three African-American women out of all all the people that the U.S. sent overseas. This is set in World War I. There were three African-American women who went overseas. That was it. Those were the only ones that were allowed to go. And they all went with the YMCA and i thought that their story was really interesting and i really wanted to include like a, a mention or a cameo of them but they got there a little bit after they got to paris a little bit after my character left and i just i i had to fudge it a little bit and have them be there at least one of them be there a little bit early so she could meet them and have an interaction with them because i just i really wanted to to get their story in there a little bit so i but i do have a note at the end that i i say yes we know that this 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 isn't right. They were a little bit later that they got there, but sometimes when I mean, you just really want to get a mention of something in there, kind of like the moving moving the parade back by a year, it's just the temptation's a little too much to resist. Yeah, it reminds me of a game that I play a lot of that is called uh, The Long Dark,
0: and it begins with I this, love that this caveat that's like, "We are aware that wolves don't normally attack people." <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can sort of hear that. There there was some fatigue with that feedback when they decided to put it in there.
1: I think uh, from my perspective, Kurt Vonnegut once wrote a book that was interspersed with recipes for food because he wanted to give a flavor of what the book kind of felt like as you moved through it. And he put a note in there about how none of the recipes should be taken as literal. You shouldn't take his book and go and do the recipes uh, because they weren't accurate, and that anyone worth anything would have the original recipes and cookbooks on their shelves anyway. And I think that that's sort of the flavor historical fiction needs to take, uh, in in my opinion, uh, because what you're trying to do is contextualize and give a flavor of what that history was like. And as a reader, you probably don't want to say, you know that that fiction part means a lot, and you don't want to say, no, this wasn't accurate, you know, there needed to be more eggs in that recipe, you know.
0: <laughs> I like that Kurt Vonnegut could always find a way to kind of like, ah, you people, which is, <laughs> he's like, I know the recipes aren't right, you should know better. He puts mm-hmm. it back on the reader, which I love. Uh, the next question is for Emily specifically, you have a pretty significant... History scholarship background. Uh, you are not like a layman in this world. Do you ever find it difficult to diverge from the historical record as you're creating fiction?
2: Yes, it kills me. <laughs> it's so painful. So I, I have a, a master's degree in history, and I also have an MLA in historic cultural landscape. So I have a lot of interest in that. and I teach history up at Utah State University. And so, so I do. I like things to be accurate. And it's really, it is painful. It is hard to to step away from that even when sometimes we just don't know things there's some things that no matter how much research you do you're never going to get that that detail or find that information and i will research it forever until i'm really really sure that 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 detail isn't out there and then i have to make it up and it's it's scary to do that because again there may be that one person out there somewhere that knows it and i don't and then they're going to come back and say well you're an idiot because you didn't know this and, and it just, it is, it's painful to change things or to make them up because especially when you've done so much research to have it accurate and then have something in there that, that you know isn't. That actually re- leads really
0: well into the next question, uh, which is for anyone on the panel who wants to answer. And I think you probably would each have very different answers. What is your research process like?
3: Like I said, I'm a Wikipedia researcher. <laughs> you know, uh, I, uh, I, I try, I write very quickly. I write in spurts. I'll, uh, I'll write an entire novel in just a few months after not writing for six months because I'm just letting it percolate in my head. And so to me, a lot of the times, if I have to stop and go over and like look through things, it derails my process completely. And so I'm, I'm very much about the pacing and the characters and the plot, and I just kind of try to pound through it. And uh, my wife's my first beta reader on everything, and she gives me so much crap about it because she loves doing research and she loves looking at all that stuff. So oftentimes, you know, I'll be working on something. I'll be like, honey, would you look this up for me real quick? (laughs) Uh, Because I don't want to stop and do it. And I'll go back and change it later. Uh, But uh yeah, so as limited as possible. But again I'm working in a second world and I'm only going for flavor. You know, I'm I'm aiming for something that's like like more like a TV show would be that's, you know, in terms of historical accuracy um, rather than being super accurate?
2: Um, I tend to start, um, I find an idea that I like, something that seems really cool, maybe a story that other people haven't heard about. And I think, oh, this is awesome. I have to tell this story. And then I go and do the background research. So I find um, secondary sources, you know, books that just talk about what life was like in this time period. And I try to read the primary sources. I try to read things that were written in that time period Um, If I can find journals and letters and things like that, I I get really, really in-depth, kind of the opposite of that. (laughs) Wikipedia isn't all bad, but (laughs) but for me it would definitely be just a very base starting point. So going back to those original sources, trying to find out. And then as I'm writing, I'll run into things. You know, I'll talk about somebody's shoes and, oh, do they have shoelaces or buttons? How do their shoes go on? I need to find that out. Or, you know, what what are they... um, if they're celebrating a holiday, how do they celebrate it and go back and look for those little details as I'm writing? Um, sometimes I do write ahead and then go back and, and change it later and, and check on it later. But, um, but if, I, if I do the research ahead of time, then it's in my head enough that I can write quickly, because I do like writing quickly, and then go back and fix the small things later.
1: Um, I think for me, uh, I like to kind of research as I'm going in that I'll do a lot of research to put the story together. Uh, reading history books. One of the things I really love doing is is, uh, the two books I've written that were uh, historical fiction or alternate history fiction, there are eras in which we can read newspapers from that era. And we can, you know, you read how people were writing, how people were quoted. Um, The ads in those newspapers were surprisingly helpful because, you know, I would have never thought that tooth powder was a thing rather than toothpaste or uh, little details like that. Um, when I was working on World War I stuff, I would go over to the library and have my computer out, and I'd be working, but I'd just have, uh, I'd pull out all the old big picture books with things and just flip through pages as I was going. Um, and it was me trying to replicate sort of what uh, Martin Scorsese says he does in the editing room. So on the editing room, Martin Scorsese has a monitor on at all times with, like, Turner Classic Movies on it. And it's because he's just, every once in a while, if he gets stuck, he'll glance down and maybe something, whatever is randomly curated on the TV there, might help him get to that next thing. So that's me flipping pages on three or four history books as I'm working through scenes and through details. And I found so many great details that I was able to weave into the story that way as it was coming together naturally.
3: You know, I, I should mention that, like, I think for a lot of authors, I know epic fantasy authors uh, that are very much like this for me, that that the inspiration that comes from reading history is amazing. Um, And I don't know if it qualifies as research, because I'm not looking for specific details, but I'm looking for something that's cool, that's a wow factor from history that maybe people don't know about, or or maybe that's familiar enough to people that it's a good way to transport them into another world. Uh, My first book, very heavily inspired by the French Revolution. My second book, very heavily inspired by uh, Xenophon's Anabasis. Uh, you know, I try to pluck things that are
1: really cool and, you know, twist them and use them in my own way. That's exactly why I love listening to this podcast. To be honest, because no, it's it's. I'm serious, and this is why I tell writers nice, every time. Nice job, Brian. No, every, really every time I talk to writers, push it
0: while you're on it. That's every time I talk
1: to writers at conventions, I tell them that that it's the sort of thing whether they're listening to this one specifically or or just something like this in general. But there isn't one as good as this one. Um, <laughs> that you guys are curating content, you guys are curating stories that. I wouldn't necessarily seek out in any way, so I'm getting just one story after another that maybe they don't connect, but they're making me think about things and soaking in those cool things. There are so many episodes that I just save and go back to later. The fantasy book uh, that I worked on, the the werewolf, the French werewolf episodes Mm -hmm. you guys did, I listened to those probably four or five times while I was writing that book.
3: I, I know myself and uh, another epic fantasy author, uh, Brent Weeks, are both huge fans of uh, hardcore history. Mm-hmm. And listen to that religiously. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and that's a great one for me for just you know, just sitting there and listening about you know, that emotion of history and, and trying to pluck something
0: from it. I also have it on good authority that history podcasts are great tools when you're running a D&D campaign. <laughs> yeah. Figure out what's happening to your players So uh, that's actually pretty A pretty interesting research sample set I like how when we asked about How the writers prepare their research And what their process is like They all gave completely different answers about it Which um, kind of illustrates Exactly what we were going for A wide range of, of styles And writing types So now we will pause for a quick sponsor break and then we're going to jump right back into this writer chat from Salt Lake Comic Con. The next question that I have, I'm going to start with Brian, but if other folks have ideas, I also would like to hear from the rest of the panel too. Uh, In the last few years, there seem to be more and more books that come out, and somebody will raise the question of, uh, the characters in this book are not very diverse. Uh, And often enough for it to be a pattern, the response is like, well, that was history. Uh, so I wanted to see what your thoughts were on that. Brian? Um, I think that that's kind of
1: being a lazy writer, to be honest. I think when you look at things like um, maybe the way women are treated on Game of Thrones, per se, um, that that's it's historical in one way that he was basing it off of one perspective of medieval Europe, but it's his own universe. So there's nothing that says that... That the culture, as it exists in that sexist form, needs to exist that same way in his universe. Um, you know, you, that you can find ways to work around that and and stand behind that fiction shield and come up with ways to to put that together. I don't think that's necessarily a way or, or, or a way to acknowledge it. Um, you know, a book I worked on uh, that that isn't out yet or anything. It's about filmmakers in the nineteen 19- Teens running from Edison's patents men who were thugs that were hired by Edison to shoot up cameras and make sure nobody uh, made films unless they were paying him what was essentially protection money. And it was a very male dominated industry. It was a very male dominated uh, era. But finding ways to incorporate female characters in more contemporary settings, like I said, you just need to give the flavor of that history. You don't have to. You don't have to... I, I don't want to say that it's masking what that history was, but it's including people now into what it might have been and finding ways to do that that are creative.
2: Yeah, I, I agree that it's it's lazy writing to, to say, well, everybody was white, everybody was straight, everybody was male. I mean, you know, obviously that one's not true. But, <laughs> but the other ones aren't true either. <laughs> the other ones aren't true either. They, as I was... It's, it's just that history has been whitewashed, and we don't look. Even European history, there were uh, there were minority groups throughout—racial minorities, and religious minorities, and um, sexual orientation minorities. They were all there throughout history. They were they were part of the land, the historical landscape. As, as I was researching for *Born to Treason*, it's a it's a Welsh Renaissance setting. And as I was as I was looking through sources for that, I found a book called Jews and Muslims in Medieval Wales, and I was like, "Well, there's another book I'm going to have to write because that's awesome." <laughs> <laughs> you don't you don't think about that. You don't think that. But they were there. We just sometimes you have to look for them. And so even if you're writing, I mean, definitely if you've got a fantasy setting, you can you can play with that. You can include um, people of different of, of diverse groups. But but even if you're doing um, just straight historical fiction and it's very accurate it's based on on research those those minorities were still there they were just kind of being hushed up and they weren't necessarily getting a lot of attention from contemporary writers or sometimes even from historians today who are still sort of digging them up and so it is out there and you can and you can include it and there's not really a good reason not to if you're like if you're creating a a community that's in a historical setting
1: Mm -hmm. um it's a really interesting thing where you can find that many of these communities had their own sources of of outlet where you could read about what they were doing. Um, I've been researching for a long time a story about the Japanese internment in World mm-hmm. War II, and I'd, writ- I'd read all of the, the sort of contemporary accounts and things, but it wasn't until I, I didn't feel like I had a full picture until I actually found the daily newsletters that they were printing on the inside themselves and hearing how they were describing that that in their own words, that I realized that the history we knew was just sort of the version. You know, it's it's true. History is written by the winners, and the Japanese internment is no different. And seeing how they wrote about it in their own words was was incredibly enlightening.
0: I'm also going to take a moment to uh, pitch the medieval uh, the people of color in European art history Tumblr. It's great. It's so good. Uh, Number one, for constant examples all over our history of, hey, it was not all white people. (laughs) Uh, But then number two, for the occasional indignant response to someone being terrible. Yeah, it's spectacular. Uh, The next question is kind of for everybody. Uh, Because you all love history, and you love writing fiction, I know Emily talked about worrying that someone else might know a thing out there that she didn't happen to unearth. But I wonder, just for any of you within yourselves, how often do you find yourself battling going the route of fiction in a moment versus wanting to stay true to a piece of history that you might be in love with?
1: Um, I mean, for me, really, it is about that that flavor. Um, I haven't written anything... Um, that was so specifically tied or married to that history. It was always in service to the story, uh, especially with that, that story about the filmmakers kind of battling Edison. Um, you know, there are very few accounts, uh, and, and it's weird how many different sources you have to piece together to kind of put together a picture of what that would look like anyway so that finding the exact history, like enough of the, the background and the setting, that's what I was important that was what was important for me to stay true to rather than any of the specific details. But that doesn't mean some of it, most of it happens in Sacramento, and that doesn't mean I wasn't looking up, like, maps in which streets the streetcar lines ran on and what colors the streetcars were and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where the hotels were in relation to where they'd be staying or where their office would be or things like that.
0: It almost sounds like for every time you take creative license, you build up the actual factual stuff yeah. on the other end of it.
2: I found that as well, that we, um, so no, no Peace with the Dawn, the World War One novel, um, we wanted to, it's, it's actually about Utah's in World War One and what happened in Utah during World War One. and so we thought, well, we're both, we're both um, we both teach at Utah State University, we're up in Cache Valley, up in northern Utah, and the Shoshone were the. Native Americans that were there in that area before. And we thought it would be interesting to include them because they have a lot of history in the area, but it's one of those that's kind of been whitewashed. And so we thought this might be tricky to, like, well, how are we going to work them in? And it turned out, like, there was there was so much information. Like, the first code talkers, the first code talkers weren't the Navajo in World War II. They were the Choctaw in World War I. And we were able to work in some some details about that. And so, so it does, it often actually you might be worried that you're maybe going to step, step away. But as you do that research, a lot of times you find these really cool connections back to the original story that just, it fits really well and it. It just builds the story up more.
3: You know, I, um, I actually, I have a terrible memory, which is one of the reasons I don't actually discuss history with other people very much. Cause they'll be throwing facts at me and I'll be like, yeah, that sounds familiar. <laughs> um, but I have this terrible memory. And so I'll forget things all the time, but I'll, I, things will leak into my writing. And I, uh, I mentioned before that my second book was heavily inspired by the Anabasis, and I didn't realize that until after it was out, um, because I I loved the Anabasis as uh, in Latin as a kid. We we talked about it a lot, and the uh, teacher was giving us translations and stuff to read. And then uh, I remember in college being obsessed with it and loving it and wanting to do something interesting with it. And then several years passed, and. I hadn't thought about it for a while and I had my first book out and then the second book I worked on and finished and put it out. And looking back at it when I started to do publicity for that book, I went, oh my gosh, a army in enemy territory trying to make their way home. I wrote something that's like the Anabasis without even realizing it. And so like, I, I think that's part of being an author and, you know, even that doesn't necessarily write historical fiction. Uh, and somebody that loves history, is that it's going to leak into there a lot because you're getting inspired by other stories and those stories don't have to necessarily be fiction.
0: Uh, My next question is actually for you and it's along those same lines. Uh, You've talked a couple of times about how you don't really write historical fiction. It's more of a a historically inspired fantasy. Where do you feel like that line is in your process?
3: Um, The line, I mean... I try not to steal directly uh, because, you know, some people might notice. (laughs) But uh, so I, uh, like I said, I have a terrible memory, so I'm forgetting the guy's book, uh, the name of the book or the name of the author. Uh, But I read this amazing book. It was like something like uh, Five Ways We Got to Now or something like that. It was John John Stewart a few years ago, and that's where I got it from. Uh, But one of the things he talked about was cold, the concept of cold historically. Um And he talked about this character of uh, this guy, this real person who uh, basically brought ice to uh, North America uh, and started selling ice uh for the first time and that became a big revolutionary thing and the My next book has a character who is the ice Baron, and I stole that one directly. <laughs> um, you know, the character is completely different than the real historical person, but the way they got to power, like their their wealth and and the way things interact in that world is extremely similar um and I I felt like I could take that one because it was quite obscure but interesting and kind of cool and and has that you know that realism to it because it's real <laughs>
0: we're going to include a couple of the questions from our audience at the panel. Uh, we don't always include audience questions because we like to keep some things at our live show sort of special for the people that attend there, but we will include a couple because there were some interesting questions asked and some interesting answers given. But before we get to those, uh, what do you say, Tracy, that we pause for a quick moment and have a word from one of our great sponsors. Okay. Alrighty.
2: I felt like we couldn't talk about a historical fiction without um, bringing up the the musical Hamilton, and I just sort of um, I don't know I've I've sort of gone into the historical and and there's there's stuff that's inaccurate and um, about it, but um, I don't know it like it plays with time and, and mixes the timeline around a bit, but um, like to to sort of move the story forward and uh, to have a better flow of the story, so. I don't know really what I'm asking. Just sort of, what are your thoughts? (laughs) I
0: had on a Hamilton shirt earlier today. (laughs) She did. Uh, It it was the one from where uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda was raising money. And if you gave some money, maybe you would win tickets to his last performance, which I did not. Um, (laughs) Who on the panel likes Hamilton?
1: I haven't been exposed much to it yet.
0: Either This is where I make that blanket statement that gets booed. I'm not a big fan of musicals. Holly doesn't like singing. I don't. Um, It's not that I don't like music. It's that I don't like watching people sing. Because you can see inside their mouths and it's icky. And when they emote, they tend to make faces that are private time faces. And I'm not comfortable with it at all. So I have not... Partaken of the Hamilton juice yet.
1: I I was going to say, I think what you see with with Hamilton and any any historical fiction is, uh, Alfred Hitchcock said that fiction is life with the dull bits cut out. Mm -hmm. And so every choice that someone is making when they're adapting history into a fictional story, they're making those sacrifices and changes to tell a better story to get you to... Uh, as a storyteller to try to get you to emote or feel for things or have empathy this way or make you think about things in this way. And so history isn't like that. History is much more objective depending on the source. And historical fiction isn't that. So, so I think that's where it's great that we have stuff like Hamilton. Hopefully it takes people the next step to actually learn like, well, what did they, what did they ignore? What did, what didn't fit into that story? What didn't fit into that narrative?
3: Yeah, uh, I, the, the, uh, the entertainment or wow factor uh, is a balance I think all writers are trying to reach uh, because you're, yeah, you, sometimes you look at something and you say, I need to fudge this, but it's going to be so cool that nobody cares. Uh, so sometimes you can make things better by doing that, and sometimes you have to go the opposite direction. Sometimes you say, uh, you know what, this could be cool. But I'm not going to be able to pull it off in a way that makes it satisfying. Uh, And you know, obviously, something like Hamilton fudging works.
2: And I think um, it's, I think it's good to remember anytime you're looking at any kind of history, including your great big published history textbooks and things like that. Someone is telling you a story. Someone is selling you a story. They want you to to believe that history was the way they said it was. And it's it's a little almost creepy to think about that like because it's history it happened right it's just the stuff that happened but it's always being told as a story and it's always being retold and that's why historians have jobs is because we're retelling history over and over again and understand and sometimes it's things like uncovering the jews and muslims who lived in medieval wales and nobody's written about them before and sometimes it's just new takes on things it's new information but someone's always, twi- someone's always telling you that story, and their own biases are in it. Historians are as biased, if not more so, than anybody- than as-, as everybody else is. And so, I mean, yeah, you look at something like Hamilton. People go in there, I think, knowing that it's not 100% accurate. I mean, we don't even know if Alexander Hamilton had a great singing voice. So, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so I- there's an understanding, I think, when you go into fiction... And there's, you know, different levels of fiction. If it's a musical, we're going to expect things to be condensed and changed. If you're reading historical fiction, maybe we expect it to be a little more accurate. But there's still that fiction aspect. And even when you're reading, like, academic history, it's it still has its own biases. And it's still a story. They're still telling you a story.
0: Uh, I love Hamilton. Uh, people started writing to us about Hamilton, really, before it became a really well-known Thing. Like, definitely before the cast album came out and before, it just every time you turned around on the internet, Hamilton was in front of you. Uh, and I was like, sure, it's, I'm sure it's fine. And then when I finally listened to it, I got super excited. Um, and there has been some discussion about it being used in classrooms, which I think is a really cool idea. Because some of the history that it goes over can, frankly, seem really dry. Like, the whole thing about assuming states' debts, who who is really fascinated by that? (laughs) Um, But then I also think uh, it's a really good opportunity to talk about uh, some of the social issues that were present at the time. Like, there's a whole song about how there was no one else in the room when it happened. That was Thomas Jefferson's room. I'm pretty sure that there were enslaved people serving that dinner. And so, like, there's simultaneously the thought process of the folks who hear that song for the first time and don't think of that. And the people who really were in that room and were just having unguarded conversations around human beings that they sort of forgot were there who were actually serving dinner, which I think is a really amazing opportunity to, like, explore things like that. So not just so much to get the facts of cabinet rap battles, but uh, to talk about all of these other more nuanced things that kind of rise uh, up. I didn't mean to make that pun. (laughs) That was an accident. (laughs) But you know what I'm saying? Uh, I mean, I'm just excited that it gets people excited about history. So even if I'm not into it, that that means nothing. I love how passionate people are now about wanting to learn more. So that's the magic. Once again, I want to say a huge thank you to Brian Young, E.B. Wheeler, and Brian McClellan for being part of our Salt Lake Comic Con panel. Uh, You can reach Brian Young on Twitter at Swankmotron, E.B. Wheeler at EB underscore Wheeler and Brian McClellan at Brian T. McClellan. We will also include links to all of the authors' websites and our show notes, which will be on our website. And we encourage you to go investigate their work. There's just a a breadth uh, in their types and styles that they're writing about. You know, we, we've got everything from historically inspired fantasy to straight up historical novels. So lots of things to choose from. Yeah, and again, uh, also thanks to Salt Lake Comic Con for having us and to Ryan Call for helping us put together that pretty great panel of people. Uh, I, I absolutely love the people that run Salt Lake Comic Con. They do an amazing job and they make our jobs easier while we're there. So thank you, thank you, thank you. I have some listener mail. Okay. Since we've been traveling so much, we're getting a little bit of a postcard pile up. So <laughs> so I'm going to try to move through at least some postcards that we get. We can never feature them all, unfortunately, but uh today I have 3 to touch on briefly. Uh I won't read them all, but I will talk about them a little. One is from our listener Brenna and she sent us a uh, a postcard from the Winchester Mystery House and it's really really lovely because it's in this fun art style that looks almost like um Some of the postcards you can purchase at Disney of some of their attractions, so it's... Sort of fantastic. Uh, the next one is from our listener, John. And he says, hi, ladies. I love your podcast. My family and I were touring this museum during a Labor Day weekend anniversary getaway. The guide mentioned how signs reflected changing times and culture. And I thought of two. They specifically cited how the big boy had changed through time. Keep up the great work. They went to the American Sign Museum in Cincinnati. And this uh, postcard is a lovely image. Of the big boy, holding his giant hamburger. And I kind of love signs, like I love that aspect of Americana, so thank you, thank you, thank you, John. Our third and final postcard for today is from our listener, Anne. It says, Hi, Holly and Tracy. I just wanted to write and thank you for all the work you do making such a great podcast, although the podcast has had different hosts uh, and had different hosts then. The Easter Island update episode is what sparked my interest in visiting here after my summer research job ended in Chile. Keep up the good work. So Anne sent us a beautiful, large size postcard uh, from Easter Island featuring... The famous sculptures that you are, will often see there. It's a really lovely photograph as well. So thank you, thank you, thank you to, uh, Anne and Brenna and John for sharing those with us and taking time out of their travels to uh, write us postcards. I, I always say that I love it because it's always true. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can email us at historypodcast at housedubworks.com. You can also find us pretty much across social media as Mist in History. So that's on Twitter at Mist in History at Facebook.com. Slash missed in history on pinterest.com slash missed in history on Instagram as at Mist in history. We're everywhere as missed in history. If you would like to come to our website and visit us, you can do that. That is uh mist in history.com. There's a missed in history theme, you may have noticed, and there you will find. Uh, Show notes for every episode that Tracy and I have worked on together, as well as an archive of all of the episodes that have ever existed of the show. You can also occasionally find blog posts and other goodies. You can also visit our parent site, which is HowStuffWorks.com, and type something into the search bar, and you're going to get back some really interesting uh responses? Results, thank you. And you're going to get back some really interesting results that you can paw through and learn new things. So we encourage you to visit us online at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.
3: issues affecting the Latin community, and much more. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community. Listen to Life as a Gringo on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed.